listening to West Virginia Week, a regular podcast from West Virginia Public Broadcasting that looks back at the major stories of the week. On this West Virginia Week, the legislature began winding down its 2024 session. Wednesday marked the last day for new bills to pass their chamber of origin, and now both the House and Senate are voting on bills proposed by their colleagues across the rotunda. We'll talk about some of the bills passed so far. Plus, we'll discuss a potential strike at a major grocery chain, a court case involving one of Governor Jim Justice's companies, and what's next for Senator Shelley Moore Capito after Senator Joe Manchin steps down. I'm your host this week, Jack Walker. Let's jump right in with a few short news stories. Workers at 38 grocery stores in West Virginia, Kentucky, and Ohio have voted to go on strike, depending on further negotiations with the company. Eric Douglas has more. United Food and Commercial Workers Local 400 Union announced Friday that Kroger Union members have voted in favor of authorizing a strike. The union is cautious to say they are not on strike yet. They plan to bargain with the company and have announced a series of rallies on March 11th to present their next steps. Employees in select stores voted, and when the count was complete, 87% of them had voted to reject the company's latest contract offer, and 85% voted to approve a strike. In a statement, the Cincinnati-based company said that Kroger Mid-Atlantic stores in three states are open for business and serving customers, despite UFCW Local 400's announcement of a strike authorization. In the statement, the company said it had proposed an investment of $300 million in associate wages and health care. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Eric Douglas in Charleston. One of the banks barred from state contracts by the Treasurer's Office is financing the Mountain Valley Pipeline. Curtis Tate has more. In 2022, following the enactment of Senate Bill 262, Treasurer Riley Moore issued the first list of restricted financial institutions he determined were not friendly to fossil fuels. One of those was BlackRock. Moore accused the firm of putting China's interests over West Virginia's and encouraging companies to move away from coal, oil, and natural gas. Two years later, BlackRock is still on the list. But a report earlier this month from the Sierra Club shows that in 2022 and 2023, BlackRock bought more than $45 million in bonds issued by EQT Corporation. Not only is EQT one of the largest gas producers in Appalachia, it also is poised to be the biggest user of the Mountain Valley Pipeline. Once the pipeline becomes operational this year, EQT plans to use it to ship 1.2 billion cubic feet of gas per day, 303 miles from north-central West Virginia to southern Virginia. That's two-thirds of the pipeline's total capacity. Environmental groups and landowners have long opposed the pipeline. The state's leading elected officials have been its biggest champions. Ben Cushing, director of the Sierra Club's fossil-free finance campaign, said BlackRock is one of the world's biggest investors in fossil fuels. One of the largest shareholders of most publicly traded fossil fuel companies on the planet. Five banks are on the original list. Moore sent letters this week to six more. They have 45 days to prove they're not boycotting fossil fuels or they will be added to the list. Jared Hunt, a Treasury spokesman, said SB 262 allows any company to petition the Treasurer to be removed from the list. None has asked to be removed, Hunt said. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Curtis Tate in Charleston. The Senate passed a bill Tuesday that would require public schools to show a video on the early stages of human development. Brianna Heaney has more. Senate Bill 468 is known as the Baby Olivia Bill. The bill requires that public school teachers show a four-minute video on human development to 8th graders and 11th graders. The bill also includes an amendment that says life begins at conception. 
Senator Tom Zakubo, a Republican from Kanawha County and a practicing doctor, said he was not going to vote for the bill because there is information in the video that is not medically accurate. And although some of that is true, there are other discrepancies within the video that are grossly inaccurate. Other Republicans voted against the bill because of concerns that language in the bill would violate the constitutional separation between church and state. The bill was passed with six no votes. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Brianna Heaney in Charleston. A bill limiting what West Virginia schools can teach about diversity is advancing in the state Senate. Chris Schultz has the story. Titled the Restoring Sanity Act, Senate Bill 870 aims to limit what schools, both K-12 and higher education, can require to be taught when it comes to issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion. If passed, state institutions of education would not be able to, for example, teach about implicit bias or systemic racism. Hank Hager, Education Committee Counsel, explained exceptions to the new restrictions are carved out for the purpose of academic discussion or context. The bill qualifies the above prohibitions by allowing the discussion of the above concepts in theory as part of an academic course of discussion. The bill was recommended to the full Senate where it was read a first time Monday afternoon before being referred to the Judiciary Committee. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Chris Schultz in Morgantown. A federal judge has held a coal company owned by the Justice family in civil contempt. Curtis Tate has more. Southern Coal did not comply with the September court order to repay a Charleston insurance company more than $500,000 in workers' compensation claims. So Judge Elizabeth Dillon of the U.S. District Court for the Western District of Virginia earlier this week gave Southern Coal seven days to repay Brick Street Mutual Insurance. After that, Southern Coal will have to pay a penalty of $2,500 for every day it does not comply. Southern Coal is one of numerous companies the Justice family owns. Southern Coal argued that it was unable to comply with the court's September order because the company is insolvent. Dillon noted in her ruling that Southern Coal had provided no evidence that it had no ability to repay Brick Street other than simply saying it couldn't. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Curtis Tate in Charleston. The first U.S. city to earn a special status for its addiction recovery resources is in southern West Virginia. Overcoming addiction often means facing stigma and uncertainty over where to get help, but Beckley is forming a united front to support recovery. In March, it will become the first U.S. city to be named an inclusive recovery city. That new status, shared with just 26 cities around the globe, means Beckley will support recovery on the city level, not just through individual nonprofits. James Phillips, the Beckley recovery advocate spearheading the new project, said fragmented support networks come with risks. When you have multiple isolated pockets of recovery who maybe don't know what the other pockets of recovery are doing, there are people that slip through the gaps. Soon, Beckley will host recurring community recovery events and establish a council to address addiction locally. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Jack Walker in Charleston. Republican Senator Shelley Moore Capito will become West Virginia's senior senator next year. Curtis Tate asked her what it means for the state's clout in Washington. Senator Joe Manchin, a Democrat, is not seeking re-election. When he leaves the chamber next January, that elevates Capito's seniority. Capito is a member of the Senate Republican leadership, and she is the senior Republican on the Environment and Public Works Committee. Both serve on the Appropriations Committee. Manchin, though, is a committee chairman of Energy and Natural Resources. His departure could diminish the state's influence. West Virginia has a long history of senators leveraging their seniority, up to and including Manchin and Capito. Capito says she'll continue to leverage hers. Well, I will be the senior senator after this uh, next election, and uh, that means that my clout is uh, 
more powerful and my voice will be more powerful. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Curtis Tate in Charleston. You're listening to West Virginia Week. And now some of our top feature stories for the past week. The Mountaineer Area Council of the Boy Scouts of America serves 12 counties in north central West Virginia. On February 8th, the council appointed the first woman to serve as its governing board president. I spoke with the new president, Amy Garbrick, about her scouting background and gender inclusivity in scouting since the Boy Scouts became co-ed in 2019. To begin, could you just tell me a little bit about um, the new position that you were just appointed? I was appointed as the first female chair of the Mountaineer Area Council Boy Scouts of America. And that is a position that I will hold for, um, traditionally, it's been about three years. Gotcha. And um, could you also tell me a little bit about your background in scouting? I know that you had some experience running a, a Cub Scout troop. Uh, could you tell me what, what that was like? Sure. So back in 2013, I was um, I'm a member of Breedsville United Methodist Church in Preston County. And one of our um, church members asked me, he said, Amy, I'm going to start a Cub Scout pack here at our church. And I wanted to see if you would help me. And at the time, my sons were four and six. And so I said, and six years old was, at the time, that was the youngest that you could be. You had to be in the first grade to be in the Cub Scouts. And he said, Amy, I would like you to help me. And I said, okay, sure. So I thought they were, um, he was going to bring them all to my house and he was going to teach them, quote, scout things while like I baked cookies and they would just all hang out at my house. And so the next day, the next week at church, he brought me the Cub Scout manual basically. And he said, okay, let me know when you're going to schedule your first meeting and you're in charge. And I said, I don't know anything about scouting. And he said, Amy, you'll learn it. And um, and that was in 2013. And we started out with six boys. That was before girls were in the organization. And so that was in 2013, we started out with six boys. And then when I stepped away as the Cub Master in 2020, we had over 50 boys and girls in our Cub Scout pack. Could you also tell me a little bit about um, your plans for your incoming rule? I know that this is um, new to you, obviously, but are there any things you're particularly looking to um, accomplish in your tenure? I mean, it's actually... Pretty simple. I want to make sure that everyone in North Central West Virginia knows that the Boy Scouts of America is here for them. There is a pack or a troop somewhere nearby. And I would love to just get our word out there that scouting is still very much alive here in our counties. And, you know, we're not just the ones that teach boys how to go camping. We teach all of those things to boys and girls in all different ages of life. You mentioned, obviously, now that girls are also allowed to get involved in, in scouting beyond just the Girl Scouts, which is a separate entity. Could you tell me a little bit about um, sort of that trend you've seen over the years and maybe how it's impacted um, the scouting experience from your perspective as someone who is, you know, overseeing a lot of these programs? So so girls in scouting is actually not new. Girls have been involved in scouting for decades in other programs of the Boy Scouts of America. It wasn't until the past five or six years that nationally girls were welcomed into the Cub Scouts as well as into the, the Scouts BSA program. So that's the younger girls in kindergarten all the way up through the age of 18. Um, they were welcomed into the program about five or six years ago. And honestly, it, it's, I'm so glad for it. I was the Cub Master when we welcomed our first girl into our pack. Her name was Kennedy. And I'll never forget, she was so excited that now she actually got to not only come to the meetings because she was already coming with her older brother. Now she gets to come to the meetings and actually participate and earn advancement and earn recognition. And so she was so excited. Um, and then we actually, uh, the, the girls at the older level, at the troop level, they joined the Boy Scouts of America in 2019. Gotcha. And then maybe um, going back to um, your, your position now, um, could you tell me a little bit, you're obviously the first woman to hold this position. What does that mean for you? And how is it going to, I guess, impact your, um, the way that you approach this new role? Sure. So it's obviously very exciting. Um, I'm, I'm excited mainly to show young girls and young women 
um, that, that yes, I am a woman and I'm in the Boy Scouts of America and you can be too. And so really, if I can get, you know, just another handful of girls to join the program, you know, then I'm doing my job. And so I really just want, want young girls and young women to, to look up to me and to see, hey, hey, there's a woman who is leading this organization. Um, I should, I should join and see what it's all about. That was my conversation with Amy Garbrick, president of the Boy Scouts of America Mountaineer Area Council, discussing her new role as president and gender inclusion in scouting. There has been a lot of discussion in the legislature this year about vaccines and whether they should be required in private, parochial, or virtual schools. There has been spirited debate on the topic in the last few days. Our health reporter Emily Rice spoke with Delegate Chris Pritt, a Republican from Kanawha County, and Delegate Joey Garcia, a Democrat from Marion County, to get their perspectives. So excluding the religious exemption argument for now, um, how did either of you feel about the committee version of the bill? I'll start with you, uh, Delegate Pritt. I thought it was a very, very good bill coming out. Uh, I certainly uh, liked and approved of all of the amendments that were after that, but I thought it was a good bill. I thought it was a good start, and uh, I'm just glad we were able to get it out of committee. And what about you? How did you feel about the bill coming out of committee? So the looking at the bill, when you, when you think about West Virginia and the fact that we're leading the nation in our immunization rates of our children and, and, uh, and with the type of unhealthy population that we have too here, uh, I thought any weakening of those laws, including the public virtual schools, uh, is a crack in the armor. And, is, and, and, and unfortunately, that, as we're going to talk about, I think that's yeah. moved even further uh, during the debate of this bill. Yeah. And so um, did you support excluding public virtual students from vaccination? Obviously, you did not support and you did support. Um, what is your reasoning behind that support? And I'll let you go first again, Delia Pritt. Well, I think it's important to note that in terms of vaccinations, while one argument is that we are at the top when it comes to vaccinations, and while that may be true, it's also true that when it comes to medical freedom, we are at the bottom. We are at the bottom in terms of medical freedom, the kind of freedoms that, we, that are allowed in many, many other states. So it's factual that 45 states have a religious exemption. Uh, to vaccinations. And so any kind of bill that pushes us more in the direction of medical freedom, that's generally what I'm going to, going to be in favor of when it comes to vaccinations. What this bill does is it puts us more in line with many other states, most of other <coughs> states in particular, when it comes to religious liberties. So I think that this bill, as it stands, puts us more in line with all of those states and recognizing the liberty interests of parents. Okay. And Delegate Garcia, why do you feel like it's not a good idea to exclude um, public virtual students from vaccination? Well, again, I think starting with that part of the bill, which again, the bill is shaped into something completely different. I, I think it's just a crack in something that's an otherwise good policy. And so um, I understand kind of the reasoning behind it that maybe those children aren't in contact with other students. I, I know we had the amendment that was in committee that um, would, would again require the immunizations if somebody was gonna participate in extracurricular activities and interact. So I get that, but I didn't wanna see anything, any type of bill that was gonna put us in a situation where we're gonna break down our good child immunization laws. Okay, all right. And so then on the House floor, the bill was amended to include a religious exemption <laughs> to vaccination. So as the law stands currently, West Virginia is one of five states that will only accept a medical exemption to vaccination. This is a bill that would allow parents or guardians to present a letter stating that a child cannot get vaccinated for religious reasons. 
If this bill were to become law, what are some pros and cons of that change in state code from each of your perspectives? And for uh, for uh, fairness sake, I'll let Delegate Garcia go first this time. So one thing I want to respond to with um, Delegate Pritt is talking about freedom. And, and the reality is we have medical exemptions that are available for people that might have a bad interaction with immunization. So, I mean, there is that freedom, but, but there's, when it comes to religious freedom, we have laws of general application. We, uh, and there's a number of different things. I mean, you can't, uh, polygamy is not allowed in the state of West Virginia. Uh, last year, uh, luckily, we, we finally outlawed child marriage, or most child marriages, uh, which could have a religious connotation, or, or in the past, those have been something that's been prevalent. Uh, same thing with murder or Sharia law. We don't allow that just because somebody has a religious belief. Here, immunizations protect our vulnerable population, our kids, things like meningitis, uh, you know, if, if there's outbreaks in a dorm, that affects somebody for the rest of their life. And so things like polio, measles, uh, and measles in particular, that's, that's one area where other states that have opened up uh, and allowed for these types of exemptions, they have seen outbreaks. We have not seen that in West Virginia. And I think that's really the strongest reason why we want to keep a healthy population. And uh, Delegate Pritt? Well, Briefly in response, one of the things that I think is very, very important to note is that in these other states, um, these bill, this is nothing new. The concept of having medical exemptions in addition to exemptions based on religion, this is something that is being done in other states. It's been done for years in other states, even based on religion and other reasons. And one of, one of the things I think is also important to note is that, look, science changes over time. I mean, there have been horrific things that have been done in the name of science. So, for example, I was talking with my mom the other day, and she was talking about a distant cousin that died just about 10 years ago. And that distant cousin that we have, or had, I should say, um, had been lobotomized. He had undergone a lobotomy over 50 years ago. So that was the medical science at the time, and that changes over time in terms of what is generally accepted to be appropriate. That was Delegate Chris Pritt and Delegate Joey Garcia speaking with Appalachia Health News reporter Emily Rice about vaccines in schools. To hear the rest of that conversation, visit our website and tune into the legislature today every evening at 6 p.m. It took 66 years to go from the Wright brothers to the moon. Experts say it won't take that long for artificial intelligence to turn everything on its head. Randy Yowie talked with Joshua Spence, Chief Information Officer for Alpha Technologies, and Delegate Evan Hansen, a Democrat from Monongalia County, on what AI means for now and the future. All right, let's start with you, Josh. AI, artificial intelligence. Let's just get a basic definition because it, does, it falls into a couple of different categories, right? Yeah, absolutely. AI's been around for a while, and there's a couple different variations of how, it, um, how it's leveraged. Um, but ultimately, it's technology and it's a tool. So it, one, one form of which AI has been around is you see that natural language processing. And so natural language processing is when you go to a web browser search engine, Google or Microsoft, and you search something, you can pretty much ask the question however you want, yet the search engine is able to interpret what you're asking. And so that's one form. The form that's really come out more recently that's gotten a lot of craze is generative AI, where you're asking the technology to generate something creative or create something off of a prompt. And we, we have del we have uh, legislation, Delegate Hansen, uh, regarding a number of aspects, but from what I heard from the speaker back before the session started and, and some others as well, uh, we want to just get a hold of AI before it gets a hold of us for both good and bad. Am I right? 
I think that's true, and I think we need to educate ourselves as lawmakers because AI has great potential to do good, and it also has potential to do bad, so we want to be able to make smart policy. Um, let's start with some more definitions, deep fakes. I mean, that's more than Photoshop on steroids, right? Absolutely. So a deep fake is where you're taking a video or an audio or both and you're digitally altering that, usually on a person or an object, and you're changing what that object or person looks like. So uh, the, the, mo uh, the real dangerous piece to it is when you're changing the voice to make it say something different, the person to say something different, or they look like a different person. And of course, uh, those can be used for malicious purposes. We've heard that in the House the other day with a bill that talked about deep fakes regarding elections and, and campaigning. Uh, tell me about the concerns there. Well, there is a concern. We, we saw what happened with somebody essentially faking President Biden's voice in New Hampshire. Um, so deep fakes can be used directly in elections. I mean, there are some subtleties in, related to that bill. Um, the definition of deep fake, in my opinion, included things like photoshopping images on a campaign mailer. And so I think that that kind of underscores the importance of us really getting educated on this issue so we could properly define things in the bills that we pass and, and target the truly malicious actors rather than over-regulating. It's, it's all still pretty new to understand. Uh, when, you, when we talk about that bill, uh, how would enforcement come about? I think that's one of the, <laughs> one of the good questions as well. I mean, it, that particular bill outlawed uh, the use of deep fakes for elections within 60 days of an election. And I assume some type of complaint would need to be filed. But, you know, that's even without deep fakes, there's all sorts of malicious things that happen with elections in the days leading up to election day. So we're not in totally uncharted territory. It's just that even more malicious things could be done if you're impersonating somebody. Josh, there's another bill out besides um, a campaign and election that has to do with pornography and minors. And I know that there's a big concern there when it comes to some of these deep fakes. Yeah, absolutely. So just like any any technology advancements, those those tools can be used for good or they can also be used for, for bad and for malicious intent. And so we need to be on the forefront of making sure uh, there's protections in place to protect citizens. And this is a big protection that needs to be put. And I'm glad to see that they're moving it forward. Um, let's talk about education. You, you sent me a couple of notes that I thought were interesting that education's initial response is to slow down and inhibit the use of AI in the classroom. Is cheating right? But no. Uh, there, let's start with you, Josh. There's a number of ways that education, that AI is, is is a positive tool for education. Absolutely. It is a tool that we need to incorporate into how students learn and how they performance students because the expectation once they get into the workforce will be to leverage AI as part of their job. So we want to make sure we're getting on the front end of that and not, um, not, not locking it down. So let me give you just a real quick example. When I was in high school, we'd ask the math teacher, can we use a calculator on the test? And of course, her answer was no, we couldn't. She said, are you going to carry a calculator around everywhere you go? <laughs> But yet we do now, right? So it's just important to understand where the technology is going to do with, with the workforce so that we're properly preparing them. And it's not just math, it's science as well that we have to relate AI into our educational system, is not? I think it's everything. It's all the <laughs> subjects. And, and I, I think one of the concerns is what about cheating, right? So, and that's a real concern and something that needs to be dealt with by our school system. <laughs>
That was Joshua Spence and Delegate Evan Hansen speaking with Randy Yoey about artificial intelligence and what it means to West Virginia. To hear the rest of that conversation, visit our website at wvpublic.org and tune into the legislature today every night at 6 p.m. Willie Carver was Kentucky's Teacher of the Year in 2021, but as a gay man, he and some of his students were harassed. So, in 2022, he resigned from Montgomery County High School. Last summer, he released Gay Poems for Red States. The book earned praise and helped turn Carver into a much-followed, outspoken voice on social media. Inside Appalachia's Bill Lynch recently caught up with Carver. Gay Poems for Red States. It's, it's a catchy title. But I would say right now the climate for LGBTQ people in Appalachia is uh, is difficult, mm -hmm. uh, especially if you're trans. So it kind of feels like were you maybe kind of poking the bear a little bit with it? I, I don't want to just poke the bear. I want to rip the blanket off of it and knock the door off of its hibernation den and force it to see what it's doing. A lot of what happens, and I say this as someone who is queer and Appalachian, is we, we want to create easy national categories for people who can't be put into those things. And so I am just as much Appalachian as I am queer. And to choose my queerness as a general rule in the United States is what, to move to a coastal city and then look down on the ignorant red state people. And I think to choose my Appalachian-ness sometimes would be to see those highfalutin city folks as uninterested in my life. And I, my, this title was my way of saying, I reject both of those. I'm going to be exactly what I am. And uh, I want you to recognize me doing it. I want, I want both stereotypes to see me doing it and question their role and why I'm having to poke. Two bears, really. You've lived outside of Appalachia. What was that like to kind of be an Appalachian away and looking back in? So the funny thing is my first place, the first place I moved to outside of Eastern Kentucky was France. I lived in Picardy, which is, it's in the far North. Uh, there used to be a lot of coal mines. Those have shut down. So now there's a lot of poverty, regional accents and traditional know-how that people sort of share with each other to get by. I was so at home. <laughs> I was like, I might as well be in Appalachia. Uh, and then I moved to the deep South uh, and I learned that Appalachia is not the South. Uh, I mean, it, it is some version of it, some whatever uh, metaphor people want to use to describe that relationship. But the humor of Appalachia doesn't translate easily into the suburban South, at least. Um, I think the uh, free spirit and the not taking stuff too seriously part of Appalachia doesn't translate itself very well to the South. I lived in Vermont. It's beautiful. It's where I got married. I will always be grateful for that. But it was there that I really saw played out with my, me being in the middle of it, this sort of ignorance about people from Appalachia, people from the South, people from rural places in the mouths of supposedly progressive people, people questioning my intelligence, people making these assumptions that I must have had to escape some horrific place. I must be so grateful because everything is better. I said something online that uh, angered a lot of people. So that must mean I must have said something close to the truth. Someone had questioned me and said, why would a queer person choose to live in Appalachia? I just don't understand. And I said, because it will be easier for me to convince Appalachians to treat me with dignity as an LGBTQ person than to convince coastal liberals to treat me as an Appalachian person with dignity. And I think because we sort of collectively as a country group Appalachian people into a political group, no one feels any guilt about the, the way they treat people with stereotypes. So I learned uh, living outside of Appalachia, how Appalachian I am, um, and two, that 
the parts of me can't be divided away for anyone's benefit. This book comes out after, well, everything that happened in 2022. So how far do you go back as far as poetry? Were you writing before then or did it, the, the catalysts of, you know, being teacher of the year in Kentucky and then, you know, leaving your job, which came first, I guess? Poetry came way first. Um, I was always interested in language, uh, interested in how my family communicated ideas. I would, I've been obsessed with linguistics my entire life, but I, I would hear the poetry and how people talked and wanted to replicate it, wanted to capture it. And in college, I had fantastic professors. I credit them with helping me learn to feel like I was a poet. Once I became a teacher, I basically wrote for my students. That was what it looked like. Uh, so I wasn't writing to publish or anything like that. I really conceived of myself as a teacher. I go into the classroom and whatever my students need, it's for them. Whatever I'm doing outside of the classroom is really tied back to my classroom. So I wasn't thinking about writing. But then once I left the classroom, I felt this strong need to do what I'd always been doing, which is help students. It's almost like, um, like a parent watching their kids and the parent is actively trying to take care of them. And then you're sort of pulled away and you're like, how do I take care of them? Right. In this case, that may remind them how strong they are. And so poetry was a, a natural way to do that. That was poet Willie Carver speaking with Inside Appalachia's Bill Lynch. To hear the rest of that interview and more, listen to Inside Appalachia Sunday mornings at 7 and Sunday evenings at 6 on West Virginia Public Broadcasting. That's it for West Virginia Week. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you back here next week. As always, you can see these stories and more at wbpublic.org. I'm Jack Walker.